today we are finishing our series on marriage. I could literally go on another five or six weeks because there's so much in Ephesians chapter 5 on marriage. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the priority of marriage, which is a man shall leave his father and mother. You know what one of the most damaging things to marriages today are? Uh, Statistically speaking, it's not pornography and alcohol and drug addiction. One of the most damaging things to marriages today is family. What do I mean? Parents and children. We have a lot of marriages in America that are being destroyed and damaged because couples are allowing either their parents or their children to become more important than their spouse. And that's why the Bible talks about the priority of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And that was radical in that culture because that culture had such an emphasis on the children taking care of the parents. And it's not that you're to dishonor your parents or you're to abandon your parents, but you're supposed to cleave to your wife. The Bible teaches that your relationship with your spouse is the most important relationship you'll ever have. You know, psychologists are telling us today that one of the most uh, uh, damaging forms of child abuse today is surrogate spouse child abuse. What does that mean? When you're getting emotions from your children that you should be getting from your spouse, you're making your children more important than your spouse, which how many know is an issue in America today. That's one of the most damaging forms of child abuse because you're making that child a surrogate spouse. You're, you're allowing that child to meet your emotional needs that your wife or your husband were created to meet, and it becomes very damaging to the children. There's a lot of psychology on that today, on, on, on the whole surrogate spouse child abuse. And that's all the priority of marriage. And, but today we're going to close with the purpose of marriage. So if you want to get the end of the marriage series, I encourage you to join the marriage life group. We're going to be talking about it for the next couple of weeks. We don't have life group this week because of the marriage conference, but we start again next Wednesday night. So if you want to get the rest of the marriage series, I encourage you to join the marriage life group. We'll be talking about it uh, throughout the rest of this semester. But today we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. And for single people uh, who are today here today, this is probably the most important message out of all the marriage series for you. Because the purpose of marriage helps you with spousal selection. It helps you figure out who you should be looking at and who you should be considering for marriage. Because all the single people in our church uh, are in one of two categories. Now, there is. let me give a quick disclaimer. Paul does talk about the gift of singleness, but let me explain. That is extremely, extremely rare. Most of us were called to get married. The majority of human beings were called and created to get married. There are only very few people that are called to the gift of singleness. And if it's you, wonderful. You need to look at this series as a college course because eventually you're going to have to give advice to a friend. And so that's why with the series we're on, we didn't choose to to get the latest uh, Christian book on marriage with a lot of good psychological, biblical principles. What I wanted to do is give you the theology of marriage, help you begin to see marriage through the lens of Scripture. Because when you get into the theology of marriage, you'll get more practical principles, more relevant psychological uh, uh, principles out of the theology of the Word of God than anything else you can go to or, or get. Because I mean, no. The latest Christian book on marriage is going to be out of date in 10 years because culture changes, but the Word of God is timeless. God's Word is timeless. It never changes, and it's helped hundreds of thousands of people over hundreds of years and continues to stand the test of time. And so I want to go to Scripture to really get the right view on marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 21. We're going to begin the classic text on marriage that we've been in the entire month. And further... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, wash 
by the cleansing of God's word. We're going to come back to that as one of the foundation scriptures for today. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows a love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. That's the other foundation text for today, feeding and caring for your body. And we are members of his holy body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united or cleave into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's talk about the purpose of marriage today. If you're in your notes following along with me, the purpose of marriage is friendship. The purpose of marriage is friendship. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Because, but let me, let, me, let me attack a modern thought and a modern belief in America today. Most people believe in our modern viewpoint that marriage is romance garnered with friendship. That's what marriage is. It's romance. We, we, we look for somebody that we have romantic feelings for, and then we hope we can discover a friendship with that person. But biblically speaking, what marriage really is, is friendship garnered with romance, garnished with romance. That's what the biblical view of marriage is. It is a friendship. Marriage is friendship. The purpose of marriage is friendship. And when you have that deep biblical friendship, then it becomes garnished with romance and great feelings and affection and emotions follow the friendship you discover in marriage. And where do I get that? Genesis 2 verse 18 The Bible says, then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper who's just right for him. Man was lonely. It wasn't good for him to be alone. God had to create a friend for him, a helper to meet his emotional needs, is what the word of God is saying. It wasn't good. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Where is man at this point? What is the conditional state of man at this point in his life? He was in perfection. Man was living in the Garden of Eden in an absolutely perfect environment, in a perfect state. There's no sin, there's no no decay, there's no curse, there's nothing he has to fear or worried about. Not only does man live in perfection, but man has a perfect relationship with God. He is an absolutely perfect. There is nothing separating him and God. He has a perfect relationship with God. He is living in perfection. And what does God do? God says, that's not enough. What do you mean, that's not enough? I mean, he's living in perfection. He has a perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. And God is saying, that's not enough. God is saying, listen, I'm not enough for you. I want to create you a friend that will complete you. That's exactly what God is saying. God is saying, I have created you human beings to not just need a vertical relationship with me, but I've created you as human beings to also need a horizontal relationship with one another that can only be complete and fulfilled biblically with with, with a relationship between a man and a woman. That's what God is saying. That's why marriage is the most important human relationship you will ever have. Now, if you have the gift of singleness, wonderful. For those of you that are single, understand you need to take notes today because this will help you choose the right spouse. It'll help you have the right frame of mind in spousal selection for the way God designed and built and purposed marriage, which was it's not good to be alone. You need to be in a healthy, biblical, godly marriage relationship because that is the greatest form of friendship. You know, marriage affirmation has the power to reprogram your self-esteem. 
Marriage affirmation, the affirmation you get from your spouse, when your spouse says, you're lovely, you're, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're strong, whatever it is, that affirmation from your spouse in marriage has the power to reprogram your self-esteem. You could have been told your entire life by your parents, you're no good, you're ugly. But if your spouse says you're beautiful, he literally or he, she literally has the ability to reprogram your self-esteem. In the same way, if everyone in the world says you're beautiful and your spouse says you're ugly, you're going to feel ugly. So spouses, you got to understand the power you have in this friendship. This is the, the deepest and most intimate form of friendship two people will ever share. And it's such a level of friendship that it literally has the power to reprogram your spouse's self-esteem. Think about that for a moment. And go home and ask yourself, what are you programming into your spouse? Your words literally have the power of life and death in your spouse. You need to be very careful with your words you use with your spouse because you will program them good or bad by what you say. And what your words actually supersede their own heart. You know, their heart may be feeling terrible, but if you affirm them in a godly, positive way, your words can even override the way their heart feels about themselves. Remember that. So let's look at marriage quickly. Number one, the biblical view on wife is friend. The biblical view in the Bible of a wife is friend. That is the biblical view of a wife. Proverbs 2, verse 17, she has abandoned her husband and ignores the covenant she made before God. Now, we're not going to get into the context and meaning of that chapter, but what I want to point out uh, about this verse is a, is a Hebrew word the Bible uses to describe husband and wife. There's a Hebrew word being used here. Now, there's other Hebrew words that, that could have been used for spouse, but the Hebrew word being used in Proverbs 2, and you see it throughout the Old Testament, is the word alap. It's a Hebrew word that means intimate, it means friend, it means confident, it means close and personal. The Bible is using a Hebrew word, alak, to describe husband and wife. Now, why is that radical? Well, why is that shocking to the culture of when this was written? Because if you understand ancient times, if you understand the pre-modern culture of when the Bible was written, wives were viewed as property and possessions, that's the way the culture viewed the wife. It, it, you were joining two families together. She was property. You, you actually, back then, you bought the wife. You'd offer a number of camels, and if, and if she was pretty, you'd have to offer 60 camels. If it wasn't, you'd offer 30 camels. And, and literally, wives were viewed as property and possessions. That's how they were viewed during this time when the Bible was written. So when the Bible was written, and in the Hebrew, they used the word all up, that was absolutely radical and shocking to the culture. I mean, when husbands read this back then, and the Bible says you are not to view your wife as property, you are not to view your wife as a possession, you are to view her as alap, a intimate friend, a close, personal, confident. That's why it doesn't make sense to me why you always hear these feminists that say the Bible is so oppressive to women. The Bible is actually liberating for women. The Bible raises the equality and dignity of women. The Bible is the first holy book, the first uh, a religious document that did not view women as property or did not view women as possessions, but viewed women as friends, as equals, as confidence. Now, different, but in the same view before God, in the same view in a relationship. And that's critical. And that's also, if you really think about it, pretty shocking to our modern culture, too. Because modern relationships and modern marriages 
we don't look for friends when we're choosing a spouse. We go into a bar and we see 20 people of the opposite sex and we immediately eliminate 17 of them because they're too tall, too short, not dressed right, the wrong hair color. Then out of the three ones we feel are attractive enough or meet our criteria, we go and see which one we could turn into a friend or which one would say yes to us. How many of you understand what I'm saying? So for the Bible to call the spouse a friend, that it's supposed to be an intimate relationship between two people, is not only radical to pre-modern times, but it's radical to our modern thinking where we look at women as sex objects or, or homemakers. Or we, we don't necessarily look at them as, as, as friends and confidence, and but great marriages do, but a lot of modern marriages don't really build their marriage on friendship. They build their marriage on romance, and that's why you see so many marriages falling apart in America because how many know romance comes and goes? As quick as you fall into love, you fall out of love because it's really not love you're falling into. It's like you're falling into you know, when someone says, well, I, I, you know, I, I fell out of, you know, let's be honest. You didn't fall out of love with her. You fell out of like with her. You know, people come to me all the time. They say, Pastor, you don't understand. I just don't love her anymore. Well, they're right, but not for the reasons they think they're right. Because their, their meaning, I don't love her anymore. I don't have feelings for her anymore. That's what they're saying. But the truth is when they say I don't love her anymore, they're right because they're not loving her anymore. They're not being loving. They're not serving. They're not caring. They're not doing the actions of love anymore. And so there's no emotions. There's no feelings left because they're not committed to the actions of love. Because how many remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the feelings of love follow the actions of love. That's why marriage has to be built on friendship. If you build it on social status and stability, you choose a spouse because of how much money they make or their status in life. How many know the economy can change very quickly? And if that was the basis and the foundation of your marriage and the economy changes... What do you have left? That's why marriage has to be friendship. Or if you build a marriage on, on emotional, uh, emotional attraction or romantic feelings or, or sexual attractiveness, how many know? They're going to get old. Things are going to change. He's going to get a gut and lose some hair. She's not always going to look like she did when she was 18. You can't build on those things because if you do, time changes. Gravity will catch up with you. We've got to build something more than romantic feelings. And that, that brings me to the second point, which is the biblical route for marriage is friendship. The biblical route for marriage is friendship. And what do I mean by route? Well, in the Greek, there's a number of different words for the word love that we use in the English. There's the, the Greek word agape, which is God's perfect love. But the two Greek words that I want to talk about today are the Greek word phileo and the Greek word eros. Phileo is brotherly love. It, it, it's, it's love that's deep between two people that, that care about each other, that fight for each other, that, that are there for each other. Then eros is emotional love or where we get the word erotic, it's affection, it's feelings, it's, it's, it's the, the emotional feeling type of love. Well, the biblical route for marriage is phileo before eros. You have to have phileo before you get to eros. And the modern route in America today is eros and we hope to get phileo. I mean, understand what I'm saying? We start with eros and then we really hope that out of eros we'll find phileo. But if we don't, I still got my drinking buddies or my bowling buddies or my sewing group or my book club. So, you know, if, if all it is is eros, that's okay because, you know, I, I can find my phileo outside of the marriage but that's very dangerous, it's very unhealthy, and it's not the biblical view of marriage. Phileo has to come first, then eros. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Phileo love is two people standing side by side looking at the same common horizon, looking at the same vision, looking at the same goal, because phileo has to be built on more than friendship. 
Friendship isn't enough for phileo. Phileo has to have a common vision, a common goal, a common passion. In the English, the word that describes this most is the word sympathy, which is built on two words, sim and pathos, which is common passion. That's what phileo has to be built on. You have to have a common vision. You've got to have a common passion. You've got to have a common horizon. Eros is a love that C.S. Lewis describes as two people looking at one another. Two people with eyes for one another. Phileo is two people standing side by side, looking at a common horizon, a common vision, a common goal. Eros is two people looking at one another. You should never build a marriage, choose a marriage, choose a spouse out of Eros looking at one another because things change. But if you're looking at the same common horizon, if you're looking at the same common goal, which we see the common horizon for Christians in Ephesians 5, which is each other's holiness. Because one day we will stand before God and present our spouse to God, holy and clean and nourished, according to Ephesians 5. That's why you can be completely incompatible as human beings, but as Christians, you can build the healthiest, most incredible marriage because our vision is beyond compatibility. Our vision is about the common goal, and if you get the common goal, the amazing thing about having a common vision and a common goal is people become compatible fast. What do I mean? Have you ever seen the movie Dirty Dozen? Have you ever seen the movie Remember the Titans or the movie uh, The Replacements or Lord of the Rings or any of those typical guy movies where you've got a group of guys who can't stand each other? They're all from different backgrounds. They're not compatible at all. One's rich, one's poor, one's white, one's black. You've got all this different, you know, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, Lord of the Rings, I mean, you've got people from different planets, different races, aliens, and everything else. It's all different. They don't like each other. They can't stand each other. They, they, they're against each other. But then you give them a common mission. You give them a common goal, winning the championship football game, uh, defeating uh, whatever it was in the the Lord of the Rings. You know, you got all these common goals, the dirty dozen, accomplishing the battle, the mission. So you got all these guys that aren't compatible, that are terrible for each other. They don't get along. They're from different backgrounds, different walks of life. You give them the common vision, which basically throws them into the middle of a phileo relationship. Now they've got to fight together, they've got to sweat together, they've got to bleed for one another, they're losing fingers for each other, they're battling, and what happens by the end of the movie? These guys have deep arrows for each other, not in a sexual way, don't misunderstand me, they have deep affection, they have deep emotion, they're crying together, they're hugging, they genuinely love and care about each other. So the phileo, that that, that bond, that mission, that common goal, led them to having arrows for one another. And you see it over and over when you see a group of guys or a group of girls or a group of people have to fight together for a common vision and a common mission. They bond, they become close, and they develop great feelings for one another. What does that tell me about marriage? It tells me wherever you're at today, you may be in a marriage right now where you can't stand each other. But the beautiful thing about getting a biblical view for your marriage, you get that common vision, you got that common goal, just like those guys in the movie couldn't stand each other, that common vision unites. That common vision gives you deep emotion, deep passion, deep arrows for one another. You can get it back. It doesn't matter where you're at today in your marriage. The beautiful thing about being a Christian, the beautiful thing about looking at marriage through the lens of Scripture is you can get the passion back. You can find eros again if you'll get yourself into a phileo. If you'll get that vision for where you need to be. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. That's the vision for us as Christians. 
for God to finish the work in us. The vision for Amanda and I for our marriage is that one day we will have to present each other before God holy. And it's our job, we have a vision for our marriage, for what we want our marriage to look like one day when we stand before God. And that vision keeps us going when Eros isn't around. That vision is the phileo that unites us, but out of phileo, we find great eros. We find great passion. And let me, let me, if I can be really transparent and honest this morning, let me give you a little bit of our history and background because we don't have the storybook beginning to our marriage. We chose each other for the completely wrong reasons. I was, you know, I had a terrible childhood. I come from a broken background, divorced family, you know, just a really messy, ugly situation. I was a broken person. I had insecurities, I had baggage, I had issues. Uh, I was such an insecure person that I simply chose the first attractive girl that would say yes to me, and that's the honest truth. She comes from a very similar situation, brokenness, pain, issues, baggage in her family, manipulation in her family. She chose me to escape her family. She wanted to get out of Texas and escape her family. We chose each other for the wrong reasons. And that's the honest truth. And because of that, we never even had a newlywed season to our marriage. We were, we were fighting and miserable from day one. I mean, there was tension. There was fighting. I mean, we did that for, for the first two to three years of our marriage. We're now finally, after, after five, six years of marriage, we're in the last couple of years, we have been in our newlywed season for the first time. We didn't do our newlywed season first. We're now in the newlywed season. You know, and I said a couple months ago that, that uh, you know, the greatest success my first year of being the pastor here is that my marriage is better today than when I began. I meant it. I mean, we love each other now. We have great, you know, because we finally got that phileo, we finally got the vision for where God wanted to bring us as a married couple. We now have great eros. We have great uh, emotions. We have great passion in our marriage. We genuinely love each other. But we don't have the storybook beginning. We, we chose each other. I mean, we can't look back and say we married each other for the right reasons and we built it on a great... No, we, we built it on a broken, ugly, messed up foundation, yet God is redeeming it, God is restoring it, and we're creating a storybook ending to our marriage. That's the beautiful thing about Christ. You may find yourself in a situation where you don't have a storybook beginning. You chose each other for the wrong reasons. You're, or maybe you had the newlywed you know, season of life, but now you're miserable. Now you're fighting and you've, you, you, you've quote unquote fallen out of love with each other. You can get it back. You can get it back by getting a biblical view for your marriage and understand that it is built on phileo, friendship. See, when you, you know, someone said when you're looking for a spouse, don't look for a, for a finished statue. Look for a hunk of marble, a block of marble. You know, when Michelangelo sculpted the amazing statue of David, someone said, well, how did you see David in that, that, that block of marble? She, and he said, I just saw David and I chipped away everything that wasn't David. That's what marriage is about. Don't look for the finished product because no one's going to find the finished product. Look for somebody that has potential. Look for somebody that may be a little rough, but guess what? Marriage is the one relationship where you're going to be chipping away at each other in a very gentle, in a very godly way we find out to help them get to where they're to be, to help them one day present each other before Christ. And that brings me to my last point uh, of the morning. Biblical friendship produces sanctification. When you study the book of Proverbs, when you study the Bible, when it talks about friendship, biblical friendship produces sanctification. Friendship isn't your bowling buddies. It's not your drinking buddies. Friendship are people that love you enough to challenge you to go to where God wants you to be. 
not challenge you to go to where they want you to be. There's a big difference. Don't misunderstand me. Don't go home and say, you know, pastor gave me permission to change you and make you the way I want you. It's not what we're talking about. It's about getting a vision from God of who your spouse could be. Not your vision for what you want them to be, but a vision from God about what they could be. That's biblical friendship. When you, when you truly love somebody in a godly and a Christian way and you see them, them falling or stumbling, you're going to correct them in love. You're going to help them in love. You're going to challenge them in love. Well, marriage is the greatest human friendship you will ever experience with another human being. That's the design of marriage, friendship. The design of marriage is a godly, biblical friendship because when you get married... All of your weaknesses. I mean, you, you may have had flaws that may have caused you some problems, you know, growing up in your family, in your dorm room at college. When you get married, those little problems that you struggle with your whole life, they become big, big deals. Let me understand what I'm saying. I mean, marriage doesn't give you weaknesses. It exposes them. It aggravates them. It incites them. It makes them bigger than you've ever imagined. I mean, it's, it's like, you know those old rickety bridges? They look fine until a Mack truck drives over the bridge. When that Mack truck drives over the bridge, you see all of the flaws. You see the, the, the bridge coming apart. You see it shaking and creaking. It just looks like it's going to fall apart. That's what marriage is like. It's, it's your wife truck is a Mack truck running through your heart, and it just exposes everything. I mean, you get that close with another human being, all of your flaws come out, all of your faults, all of your weaknesses. They are exposed and magnified. I mean, you think it was bad with your parents. When you get married, it is just, it's all exposed. But that's the beauty of marriage. See, remember we said a couple of weeks ago, marriage is not a human invention to make you happy. That's the modern way of thinking. Marriage is a divine invention to sanctify you. God created marriage to sanctify us. That's why marriage is the one human relationship that is symbolic of our relationship with Christ. We are to present one another, Ephesians 5 says, holy and clean. And there's two parts of that in Ephesians 5. There's the cleaning part. The cleaning part in marriage. That's very personal. I mean, imagine letting somebody else floss your teeth. I mean, that's a very intimate act. I mean, that's a very personal thing. You don't allow other people to floss your teeth. Why? Because you don't know if they're going to be gentle. You don't, you don't know if they're going to do it in a way that, that's uh, not going to hurt you. It's a very private, personal thing. Marriage is designed to give your spouse that type of access in your life, spiritually and emotionally, to clean you, Paul says. It, it cleans you of the negative. It, it scrubs the dirt off of you. You know, when it's talking about washing and cleansing here in Ephesians 5, it's not talking about having a romantic bubble bath at a resort. I mean, how many know when you're bruised, when you're cut, when you've been beat up and somebody starts cleaning you, it's painful. When they start, when they start dressing that wound, it's painful. When they start cleansing the dirt and, and, and the decay and the bacteria off of you, it's not a, a and that's why, that's why in Galatians 6, it says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help the person back onto the right path. See, in marriage, it's supposed to be gentle. The example we have is when the the Old Testament talks about God will not quench a smoking flax. What's it talking about? It's talking about a candle that's gone out, and all you see is is a slight red ember in that candle stem. I mean, that's all that's left. It's, it's some smoke and just a little red amber left to that candlestick. The Bible says God will not quench it, but God will gently fan it back into a flame. That's the way we're to deal with our spouse in marriage. 
It's very gentle. It's very loving. It's very caring. We don't want to do it to crush them. We don't want to do it to bruise them, but we want to challenge them. And all through Proverbs, it talks about friendship. True friendship is constant and it's transparent. It's constant and it's transparent. A friend loves at all times, Proverbs 17 says. Proverbs 27, 9, the heartfelt counsel of friend is as sweet as perfume. James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. See, that, that is friendship. Now multiply that by 10 and you get marriage. Because you can do that in a guy's life group with your buddies, but in marriage, that's where you're supposed to be most vulnerable, most intimate, most friendship, and that's the purpose of marriage, is the closest form of friendship two human beings can ever share. See, if you're in a godly, Christian, biblical marriage, you're always going to be thinking about somebody better. That's one of the signs of being in a godly marriage, is you're always going to be dreaming about somebody better. But the somebody better you're dreaming about is your spouse in the fullness of what God has for her or him. So you're not dreaming about another woman. You're not dreaming about another man. The somebody better you're dreaming about is the vision God's given you for who your spouse can be, for her as a cleansed, pure, nourished. And then the second part of Ephesians 5, it talks about nourishing your body. Not only is there the cleaning part where you're chipping away the dirt and you're gently scrubbing off the dirt and you're gently you know, dealing with the issue. See, you need to give your spouse a hunting license inside of you. Now, remember, week one, we talked about the greatest problem in every marriage is my selfishness. That's the greatest problem is my selfishness, not our spouse. But once you build the foundation of week one, I encourage you, if you, didn't, if you weren't here week one, go back and download it off of iTunes, download it off our website, because you need to get that as the foundation to really make this message work even greater. Because first, you've got to deal with yourself. Then, once you deal with yourself, you can begin to gently and lovingly help cleanse your spouse, help get them to the state Paul talks about, where you present them one day before God holy. Then the second part is nourishing. That's the affirmation we talked about a little bit earlier, where you can nourish and feed your body. What is that? That, that strengthens your body. It, it fills your body up. It gives you the fuel you need, the calories you need to operate. Well, you've got to nourish your spouse. You've got to build them up. You've got to affirm them. You've got to love them. In our life group last semester, we were talking about the power of affirmation one week, and every week I would do a personal evaluation, and I found out uh, in a personal evaluation that I am really good affirming my son. I mean, all day long, you are awesome. I love you. You're the best. I'm really good at affirming my son. But you know what I found out? I'm very weak at affirming my wife. I don't affirm my wife near as much as I affirm my son. And I had to make some changes. I had to really challenge myself. I don't go home enough and tell my wife, you're wonderful. I love you. I am so honored to be married to you. I am blessed to have you in my life. That's the nourishing part. See, not only do we help cleanse each other, but we also have to help nourish and feed each other and build them up and strengthen them and affirm them and bless them and let them know how grateful we are to have them in our life. There's got to be both parts of that in marriage. See, modern compatibility doesn't work in a biblical marriage. See, what what do we say with our modern view of compatibility? What do we say? How many of you have ever heard this phrase? I'm just looking for somebody that will accept me the way I am. I'm just looking for somebody that would just accept me the way I am. The truth is, I don't want my wife to accept me the way I am. I want her to love me despite of who I am, but I want her to challenge me to become what God wants me to be. And that's what real friendship is when you study the Bible. 
Friendship doesn't leave their friend in the state they're in. Friendship challenges them. Iron sharpens iron. Friendship helps one another get to the state of where God wants them to be, the state of holiness. The Bible says he's, he's continually perfecting his work in us, and one of the greatest tools God uses to perfect us is marriage. That's why the purpose of marriage is biblical friendship, not hangout friendship, but biblical friendship, where we challenge one another. We encourage one another. We grow one another. We cleanse one another very gently. You know, we don't quench the smoking flax. We don't crush who they are, crush their spirit. We, 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 we cleanse them very gently and very lovingly and very humbly. But we also nourish them. We feed them. We affirm them. We love them. We care for them. And the beautiful thing is if you'll build a marriage on phileo, you get that common vision, that common passion. You'll have great sex. You'll have great passion. You'll have great arrows. It gets better and better. Because you don't really have true emotions for another person until they really know the you, real you and you really know the real them. And you don't really find out who they really are in the first couple of years of marriage. Let's be honest. First couple of years of marriage, you really don't know that person all that well. You have an idea of them from dating because they showed you the best side for a long time. But it's only after 20 years when they know everything about you and you know everything about them and you still love each other, that you find the truest form of fulfillment and passion. Because I said a couple weeks ago, one of the biggest fears in life is to be fully known and not loved. Have somebody know who you are and walk out. One of the biggest anxieties in life is to be loved and not known. Because then you live in fear every day. What if they find out about the real me? What if they find out who I really am? What if they walk away? So you live in fear and anxiety all the time. But the greatest position to be where you have the most freedom, the most passion, the most emotion, the most eros, is where we are in our relationship with God. That is fully known. They know everything about you. And fully loved. See, when I held my wife's hand when we were dating... Remember the electric charge you got? That wasn't because I loved her. That was because she chose me. It felt good to be chosen. It was self-gratifying. It had nothing to do with my feelings for her. It was self-gratifying to hold her hand. It sent that electric charge down my spine. And we think that's going to last forever. But now when I hold her hand, it's a whole different emotion. Because she knows the real me. She's seen me at my worst. She's seen my ugliness. And yet she still holds my hand. That's emotion. That's passion. That's friendship. That's what I want to challenge you with today. Go home today and talk about your vision. What is your vision as a married couple? See, our vision that keeps us going when Eros isn't around is one day we're going to have to present each other before God. I'm going to have to present her before God, and she's going to present me before God. That's what keeps us going. That's the vision that keeps us going when there's no emotions is I know one day I'm going to have to present her before God and give an account for our marriage and whether or not we were biblical friends. Not hangout buddies, not roommates, but biblical friends. People who, who challenge each other to greatness and encourage each other to greatness. That's the vision of our marriage. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. This has been an incredible month on marriage and I'm extremely, extremely passionate about seeing great marriages in our church. But as I said week one, the key, the power for marriage is having the Holy Spirit. And the only way to have the Holy Spirit in your life is put God first. Make God number one in your life. 
Because until God loves you and you've received that agape love from God, you don't have the ability or the power to love your spouse, to love your children, to love anything. You may do your best in your human effort, but you need somebody making deposits inside of you, outside of your spouse. Because when they have a bad day and they're not making any deposits, where, where are you going to get withdrawals from? That's why you need God to be number one in your life. You need God to daily be depositing his love inside of you so that you have the ability to love one another. So what some of you need to do this morning is make a decision to put God first in your life. Maybe for the very first time you're going to make this decision because you've never made a decision to say, I'm going to put God first. Or maybe some of you need to rededicate your life today. Because you've allowed other things to become more important than God. You've allowed other things to take priority over God. And you need to make God number one in your life this morning. So whatever situation you're in with every eye closed and every head bowed, I'd like a chance to pray for you quickly. Would you raise up your hand right now so that I can pray for you to put God first in your life? Right now, just raise up your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands down for me. Let me walk you through a very simple process on how to do this. Step one is you invite God to take first place. You you just give God an invitation. You say, God, I invite you to take first place in my life. And I want you to do that right now in your own way. Uh, Just say a prayer to God. Talk to God. Just in your very own way, in your own words, just invite God to take first place in your life. The second part of that is asking God to forgive you. Every single one of us has made mistakes. We need God's forgiveness. So for whatever you've done, you know what it is. I've had to do this. Everyone here has had to do this. Whatever it is, whether it's a white lie or something much, much worse, just take a moment and ask God to forgive you. And then lastly, I just want you to say thank you to God. Just show Him your gratefulness. Say thank you, God, for giving me this opportunity, this chance for giving me the ability to have a relationship with you, to have your life, your power inside of me, that you've left the Holy Spirit to be my guide, to be my friend, to be my comforter. Just say thank you to God right now.